This is Dennis McCarthy, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. It is fantastic to have you back with us. Thanks for coming back this week. We are continuing this week to look at Star Trek music. And if you've been listening to the past few weeks, you'll know that we have been doing sort of a deep dive oral history look at the music from the composer's perspective, the composer's point of view. Uh, we've already talked to Jay Chataway. We talked to Dennis McCarthy. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with Ron Jones. Ron worked on the first four seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation. He was one of the first composers to come on board. He uh, worked extensively in those first four uh, seasons. He did four, the scores for 42 different episodes. He won an Emmy for the episode Q Who?, he uh, just did a ton. And it. so one of the things I talk about, and if you're a fan of uh, music from film and TV and soundtracks, you'll know that, especially for TV, it's not always that easy to find the music if you want to just listen to the music. Like they don't have uh, official CD releases, digital downloads. Maybe you can find the themes, or maybe you can find like one or two uh, releases of some highlights, especially for older shows. It's just, it's not easy to find. It's because it just hasn't been released. There's not as big enough market for it. However, when it comes to Star Trek, there's this built in demand, uh, I guess you could say. And a couple years ago, two or three years ago, I think. There was a 14-disc box set that came out, which was the entirety, almost, almost all of Ron Jones's music for Star Trek The Next Generation. 14 discs of all of his music from the first four seasons of that show. And if you're a fan of Star Trek, if you're a fan of the music from that, from, from The Next Generation, my God, it's like a treasure trove. It's like a gold mine. I was actually listening to it again today as I was uh, preparing this episode. And it's just just phenomenal. I definitely recommend checking it out. Looking for it if you can find it. Uh, I'm not really supposed to probably tell you. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, but do look for the official release. See if you can track it down. It might be out of print at this point, but you know that's what Google is there for. So we talked to Ron Jones, uh, and we talk a lot about uh, we talk about a lot more than just Star Trek. He got his start out of music school at. Uh, Hanna-Barbera and he was an unsung behind the scenes guy working in the in the music department there and he wrote a ton just a ton of music for the Hanna-Barbera animated uh, series from the 70s and 80s early 80s he wrote a lot of themes for those shows he worked he he did the themes for the snorks and for the gobots and a lot of these shows that I just loved when I was a kid he also is the guy behind DuckTales Uh, he didn't write the theme of that show which everybody knows but he did write the music for all 100 plus episodes of that show so aside from the theme which he did work on a little bit he just didn't score the theme he didn't write it 
he wrote the underscore for every episode of DuckTales, which is basically just like geek royalty to me. Um, so, you know, if you enjoyed my epi- our episodes with, with Jay Chataway and Dennis McCarthy, you're going to enjoy this. It's a, it's a great conversation, a deep dive look at his career and Star Trek and Star Trek music. And I'm going to shut up now so we can get to it. But do enjoy and stick around. We got more to come. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, it's just a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always good to talk about uh, how the music was done. Yeah, it's it's funny. The uh, the music, unfortunately, even though you always hear like music is a character, music is you know the the unbuilt character of any show or movie. I, I think far too few people actually think about it and how it's created. Um, so this is I, I, this is great that I'm talking to you because. I'm a, I'm a big soundtrack guy, and so I love to, to pull back the curtain and uh, shine a spotlight on, on the people who make that music, because it's, it's phenomenal work. I, I wanted to go back, uh, I guess, to the beginning. One of your first gigs out of school was with Hanna-Barbera. Uh, was that an intentional move on your part? Did you see that as a door into the industry? Was that more of a way to pay the bills until something, quote-unquote, more serious came along? Well, no. I mean, if you could get working on a network show... That was like a victory, you know. Yeah. If, uh, there was uh, at that time it was the tail end of the, the really fat times where there was so much work, so much television work, and so much um, film work, so much of everything, and still, and the work had not been sent overseas into Canada, so. Hollywood was brimming with, with work. So the opportunities were, I mean, they were still, still you had to stand and deliver. Right. Um, if you got an opportunity, but, um, you know, I just come out of, uh, the Dick Grove school. And while I was trying to support myself, um, and my wife and everything, we, I, I, I did copy work for a copy office that would copy sometimes for Sinatra, Mm -hmm. sometimes for, um, you know, big bands, sometimes a lot of record work, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Christian dates, all kinds, you know, just everything. And one of their big accounts that would come through in the summer would be Hanna-Barbera. And um, so I sort of watched this procession go by. And uh, so really I, I just volunteered to take the music um, because they had to pay someone, <laughs> excuse me, to take it. And, um, so I said, you know, sure, I'll take the 40 bucks and go. And, and that got me in to the session. And then, uh, you know, uh, over, I don't know, the course of four or five times there, they sort of got used to me being there and hanging out. And, uh, I just kept approaching the music director until he gave me a chance. And, um, I kept actually, putting red marks all over the scores and kind of correcting the other guy's work. <laughs> and uh, so I said, you know, those red circles on the heart parts and all that? He goes, yeah. I said, that's me. <laughs> and he says, you're like, who the hell are you? You know, I said, well, you know, these guys don't know the, their transpositions. They don't know their stuff. And um, I'm trying to show you that I do. So, yeah. 
it was sort of a uh, you know kind of a dick way to do it, but I but I did impress him um, enough to get in. So so uh, the idea is to get proximity with your art, your craft. Uh, what's the point of being a, a painter if you can't have any canvas or have mm-hmm. any demand? So mm-hmm. so doing um, uh, a few years of that gave me hundreds of television shows. I mean, not just ten or eleven, but pieces of a of a thousand yeah you know and uh so to me that was uh, a great foundation uh taught me how to the the word is crank you know how to how to get a lot of music done and it always has to be great yeah never because you're cranking you don't lower your standards you just you just develop a new a completely new level and yeah. that you never thought you could do. I was going to ask, so, I mean, you say crank, what was the, the pace like on those shows? As fast as you could go. Yeah. Um, because what they would do is back then, instead of having a union uh, sort of laws and rules that, I mean, the union was there. I mean, it was union, but they didn't have a thing where it had to be this show, this contract, so Hanna Barbera had a deal with the union so that they could they could call a band and do several different shows. So all the guys that were writing would just throw everything into a pool, and if it matched the session for Tuesday, it would go on Tuesday session, and they would just go until there's like 170 pages, and then uh, then they would wang. So the and that's where I got used to the read it down and record it. Yeah. And, and then once the band's really warmed up, you just record it. So, you know, um, when I worked with, or when I work with uh, college kids and, and people that are in film scoring graduate programs, they don't get that concept of how to get, how to write in such a way that it sounds fantastic, but they can read it down and record it. Mm-hmm. And, um, they sort of have this mythology that um, the studios will allow you to mess around, which is un- not true even for John Williams. They don't, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he he's on he's on a schedule too. I mean, yeah. everybody's on. You know, they don't go. Well, you know, we're just messing around. We can't figure out if this is a a heckle phone part or whether we should give it to the synth. You know, there isn't. That's all got to be. That's all got to be yeah. figured out before you sit down with the orchestra. Yeah, and also it's like if you if you decide to build a building, yeah, and um, you have a budget in mind, you don't go okay. Let's call all the workers; <laughs> they'll show up, and then everyone goes, "Oh, where's the board?" Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> and then you order the boards, and then they go, "Don't, don't we need a foundation?" Yeah, Is that concrete that, guys? and then you start writing the blueprint. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then <laughs> it gets really costly when you don't have it laid out. But if you lay it out, then then. Uh, really, the whole thing flows the way it's supposed to, and and all the accountants are happy. And uh, <laughs> actually, they kind of run things, you know. And if yeah. you don't, if you don't keep the money guys uh, off your ta- off your head, then uh, they will figure a way to eliminate you. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but did you write the theme song, the theme music to the Smurfs and the Snorks? Snorks. 
I did to the Snorks, um, and for the Smurfs, Hoyt Curtin, who is a music director who did like, you know, the Flintstones and all these great ones, I learned so much from him. He would write it out on a napkin, you know, like Oh my goodness. He would he would we would meet at the Denny's in Westlake Village or or Jack's Deli and he'd grab a napkin and just kinda write out a brief, you know, the melodic material and kinda yeah. hum kind of how he wanted it to go and and uh I didn't have, I don't have perfect pitch, I have relative pitch and so I would have to kind of memorize that and then drive home without the radio on or anything from from there all the you know, like an hour drive and rush into the house and write down quickly the bag that what he was talking about. He, he might go, well, it goes like, burr, 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 you know, like he's, he yeah. always sounded like, you know, Papa Smurf or something. <laughs> and, um, and you'd have to hum it, it the whole way home for an hour so you wouldn't I, forget I, it. I, yeah, you'd, and then and then and then if if somebody asked you a question like, you know, um, what color is a balloon? You know, and all of a sudden you're, you you everything would go out of your mind oh, no. because it would just it would just delete it. So I'd come in and just you know close my eyes and 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 everything and just focus on writing it down in a hurry. So um, yeah. you know, uh, but that was a great a great training, and so I got the job because I could do make the music hip. I mean, they had a lot of guys that could do big kind of grand, epic, uh, say, 60s-sounding main titles, which were kind of hip, but they were dated mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s. So I was listening to all the hip stuff and all of the kind of more progressive things. And so I, I made the advertisers and the network executives happy and so I became much more the guy that would take Hoyt's kind of sedate uh, 50s, 60s kind of sound thing and turn it into a hipper yeah. uh, feel. And um, so that made me indispensable. And then eventually I got I got the themes myself. Yeah, I got I got the, the like snorks, you know. The, the, so many of those themes are just, you know, they're earworms that all you got to do is today, for those of us who grew up on those shows, you just hear like one bar of the music and you can sing the entire song. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you go, like, if you went to Germany and you're just in like a town square yeah. and you just start humming one of those, everyone will join in. <laughs> I mean, every they, it's been burned into the consciousness of, of most of Western, uh, the Western world, more so than Plato's. <laughs> you know, writings or Aristotle or Abraham Lincoln. Or, what a or what Jesus. a comment on our culture that is. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's the the invasiveness. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, of of media. We can all hum the from, Smurfs and and sing the Ducktales theme song, but you know, we not everybody knows who Plato is. <laughs> well, and plus it was repetitive. It was perfect way to burn things in. Is every day for a minute. Every yep. day. You know, if you if you told kids. Hey, I want you to memorize these melodies, and we're and you must sit down for ten minutes a day. No one would do it, right? But it's like you kind of like disguise it in these active main titles and and uh, you know cute characters and shit. It's the perfect subversion. <laughs> um, I I've always been in the subversion business and the propaganda business. Um, and the, those little things, you know, that's why 
don't underestimate the, the power of a of a really good jingle yeah. under a car commercial. In fact, now they don't say the Honda comes with a 3.8 liter engine and it has torque. They just go. They just show pictures yep. and then they have great music. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and you don't even care that there's an engine. You just go, <laughs> like, wow, oh, that music man, sold me the car. <laughs> That's right. If that's the music, baby, that that let's go get a soccer van. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, now they're showing soccer moms listening to very you know kind of hippish, yeah. hip hoppy stuff to show that they're still hip even though they're in a soccer van. Um, you know, it's 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 complete manipulation, and we were really good at it, and we're still good at it. You're still good at it, absolutely. Um, I I have to mention your first credited work, I don't know if it was the first thing that you did, but the first thing, if you go to your IMDb page, uh, your very first credited work was the RoboForce animated special. Nobody remembers that show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved those toys when I was a kid. I ha- I still have some of them. Um, and so that, like, it's got got a special place in my heart because I love the toys so much. They just were these robots with suction cups on the bottom. Was, was that just an assignment at Hanna-Barbera? Or was that, like, how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I did, I did like the, um, um, what was it, um, the GoBots. Yeah. And I wrote the theme, and then, and then I was leaving the session, and uh, I was talking to uh, Paul Decor, who was, who's kind of the producer, and also the vocal contractor and stuff. And I said, uh, you know, that has a, that could be a song. It went ba 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 da ba 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 da ba da ba ba. And I, he said, what? I said, the GoBots, the GoBots. And he goes, quick, get a microphone. <laughs> and he like, you know, put that on there because he got paid, you know, SAG and AFTRA if there was a, you know, vocals. Yeah. So that's, 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 you know, Hanna-Barbera kind of like paid a lot of guys low, but they would actually get a big, huge mansion somewhere because they would get in on the contracts. Um, so a lot of songs that I wrote instrumentally, uh, main titles, uh, we would end up putting the song cause I'd go, Oh, by the way, um, here's my idea for the, th- for the lyrics. And they go, Oh, okay, let's do that. And, you know, it would be that quick. So the GoBots became a big, you know, thing. Uh, you know, it, it's just that's how these came about. Yeah. I didn't choose any of these things. And the IMDb is really loose and I don't think is accurate. Sure. My Wikipedia page says I was born in, in Philadelphia when I was born in Kansas City. It says <laughs> I did... It says I did all kinds of things I didn't do. Um, <laughs> Can't rely. You know, there were there's seven there's seven there were seven Ron Joneses on the hillside in Burbank where I lived. Oh my goodness! And people say, well, um, don't you have a, a second home in the Bahamas and and uh, you fly airplanes, you know, <laughs> in your spare time? I say, not at all. You know, and then they think I'm lying. I'm me. You know, or they go, no, you're from Phil. I mean, and every time I would try to change it, yeah, the guy somebody that would change it back. Wrong information. Yeah, they change it back because they go, 
no, you know, this, I'd say, and they'd say who, who, whose information it was. I said, this is me. This is Ron Jones. And, and they go, no, 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 we're not going to trust that. <laughs> you know. So, you know, when kids do their homework, I, I say, look, get a real book, you know, and go to the library or something. Don't trust Wikipedia, yeah. you know, for yeah. science or never, you know, never. <laughs> but they do Google. Everything's doing Google. Like, let's ask Google. Google's full of crap. Hey, Google just goes you know, to Wikipedia. They, <laughs> they got all the information from Wikipedia. It's all flawed. <laughs> Remember the Mars, the Mars probe, where the they had it instead of 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 uh, uh, meters, they had feet. Yeah. And so they drove the first one to the moon, to the Mars, and into the surface of the planet by something like three miles. It was embedded because somebody miscalculated. And so a billion and a half dollar Mars probe is embedded. You know, yeah. it'll be like a national park. You know, this is where they miscalculated. <laughs> and all it was was one integer was feet versus, you uh. know, because feet are so much, so much different. So yeah. uh, I'm surprised they even hit the planet at all, <laughs> you know. And they probably Googled the distance between probably. Earth and, the, and Mars. It know, wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> So that's, you know, that's a very, very uh, uh, scary proposition that we don't have, you know. So we won't. I have, I have, you know. We won't trust Wikipedia. We won't trust IMDb. We've got you. We can just talk to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At least I'm informed. I'm informed. You know, I I have actual facts and things. <laughs> well, I mean, so you, you're talking about themes and you say it's all subversion. You've been in sub- the subversion business. When mm-hmm. you When you sit down to write a theme versus mm-hmm. like just a score or a background score mm-hmm. is it just about the repetition and, and, and drilling it into the listener's head or is there something else at play well i could uh, let me answer it in two ways yeah um people respond to repetition and now the latest um music musicological um biological emotional psychological studies of these things have found that repetition is damn effective. It's really effective. And when you mess with it, uh, it causes people to get off track. You kind of, you know, take the spell off. So, um, a hip hop track or something that just goes and over and over, you might say, well, that's really dumb. Yeah. That's really dumb. But guess what? You're hooked like shit to it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, and and so we're really Pied Piper type things. So when you have melodic intervals where you place a rest, um, there's a guy named Max Martin who's like the king of, of all pop, and he's in he's in L.A. too, L.A., but he's, he's out of Stockholm. And he's analyzed Gershwin and everything else, and he, he basically knows where the hook is, uh, how you should modulate um, how the structure of the harmony should work. And then he turns it over to a crew of guys with blue heads in a basement somewhere. And they, they hip it all up uh, to the latest du jour. But he basically is like Gershwin. He just goes, I'm constructing this hook, this melody. And, you know, like if you remember when Britney Spears started out, um, she did that baby, baby, one more time. 
that was one of his ones. So it was like you could not get that out of your mind. In fact, now that I've mentioned it, probably your your listeners are going, "Oh my God!" Yeah, I've got, sing- I'm singing it right now in my head. <laughs> I gotta I gotta go get some Clorox <laughs> and get rid of it. So they're 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 intrinsically tied, and they're tied to the human receptor. The human receptor is who I write for. You know, it's it's a actual thing. You know, you're writing for what we've evolved to like and what we've evolved to even the underscore the underscore is not a throwaway background Mm. uh thing because if you can hear it it's important Mm -hmm. and if it's if you don't hear it it's because the producers composer everybody decided there was no need for music no motivation for it so if it's there even if it's soft it's having a psychological emotional um uh thing going on and uh, you talked about whether people think it's important or not i would like you to watch or your your listeners to turn off all the the sound and try to watch any fucking movie watch a star wars you know and watch any movie you can edit this later um, <laughs> you can watch and and watch any movie and see if you get bored after about five minutes and that you don't you know, you're taking it in as visual data. The the visual cortex, the front frontal lobe, has no connections to our emotions at all. There's no, absolutely no wiring. Mm-hmm. So, expecting the visual information to have dramatic impact, it won't make you cry. It won't make you laugh. It won't make you do anything. But the sound goes into those little funny things on the side that look like. <laughs> like plum plungers and it goes down actually into the, the, uh, autotomic, um, neurological system. So, you know, when you hear a baby cry, or you hear uh, a sad voice or you hear something, then all of a sudden you're squeezing those, those, um, those, uh, neuro uh, transmitters. So the music is far more important than, than, uh, just, uh, sonic toothpaste mm-hmm. that they put in there to keep it from being boring. In fact, when people say that to me, when I'm a, I walk into a, a producer's thing and they want me to look at a picture and they say, well, you know, we just need some stuff here. You know? uh. And uh, as soon as they say that, I say, I don't even say anything. I just walk out. Yeah. And they usually try to find me at the elevator and say, are you okay? Do you feel okay? Do you need an aspirin or something? I say, no, I I'm leaving. Uh, and I, and they go, why? I said, you, you, you absolutely, absolutely do not get what I'm supposed to be doing. And since you don't get what I'm doing and what I'm doing is important, your film will probably be crappy, won't get distribution and will be a failure. And I don't want to waste my time. Yeah. And I tell them that and they go, well, what do you mean? And so, um, you know, I sit there and tell them, you know, and, and I've actually been in meetings with big big shots and they go you're teaching are you teaching us right now are you giving us a lecture i say yes yeah absolutely i'm giving you a lecture and i'm not going to charge you anything for it and here's what it is and and boys and girls need to take notes you know like without the score without the sound without that um stuff you can't go anywhere i just turned down a film because they you know we're trying to get something on netflix and they, they put a lot into the 
story and a lot into they really cared about it and they're really sacrificing and big name people are doing it for scale and all that. And I said, well, how much you got for the music? And they said, oh, we're just, just going to give back end money and all this kind of stuff. I said, if you don't care about it, then it's going to yeah. permeate everything you do. And so now you've just got a visual data dump, yeah. you know, of something and you'll get, you know, you're ensuring you're going to have a terrible score and a terrible somebody that's misinformed about music doing it. And so it's like, would you have a garden party and just spread diarrhea on everything? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I mean, what, would you invite somebody that had like really bad diarrhea, you know, to your, to your cocktail party? And, you know, I mean, they do that. They go, okay, you know, we, now we got it all done. Perfect. Now let's get the, the, the big fat lady that has the diarrhea. And also the, uh, the big fat guy that has diarrhea. And we're just going to let them rip. You know, I mean, that's, that's how stupid it is that, and, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now that I don't, I really don't care. Um, if they don't understand that, I just, uh, you know, I try it, to tell it them. It kind of blows my mind though, that a director or a producer who is actually making it working in the industry doesn't get that, doesn't understand the role that music can play. Because, because they treated like idiot savants. That you know, oh, don't disturb uh, Seymour. He's he's magical over there. You know, he's magical, and he knows how to make magical films. You know, so they they give them this weird bubble. You know, and they have like bodyguards and 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 people, and you can never go over to them and say, look, your zipper's down. You know, you can't do anything. <laughs> you know, you can't you cannot do anything because they're like they float on air. They carry them around. Remember, like. Like the, the when you'd have Cleopatra and they bunch of people would lift him oh, up yeah. and carry him around. Carry, what is and it, the pound and queen? Yeah, it's like yeah. that. Oh yes, About, here we are with the common people. We're gonna do this scene now. I want everyone to just walk out this way. But try it again one more time. You know, like they're they're like complete, you know, manipulators and and egomaniac people. Like it's all typecast, and they don't they don't they're not accessible. So unless they're smart, unless they're sensitive, and unless they're informed, they won't be informed. All they have to do is do whatever the studio says. So you you hope that they do. None of the major film schools actually teach how to use music. Yeah. They just assume you're going to get someone else to do you know? it. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to be a big shot like that, and you'll be on your your little. They'll carry you around. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Someone, someone will will feed you, you know, and, and, and you know, I've been in meetings where where producers they get their hamburger delivered during the spotting, and like the the line producer cuts it up in pieces and sticks it in their mouth. No, you know, so they and, and like they got it, like they'll say now it's time to chew, <laughs> and, the, and the person's like chews, and then they forget and they go, okay, keep keep chewing. Keep Here's chewing. another one. It's <laughs> like a two year old. It's like, you know. I, I go, should I come back later? I mean, you know, are we spotting? What do we do? You know, he's got like a bib and the whole thing. And these oh. are big, big guys. So um, it's quite, uh, it's, it's not, you know, we've lost, we've lost contact with reality at some point. 
And um, it could be why that's why they have such a hard time finding competent directors. Yeah. Is that we've created this this bizarre world for them. And, um, you know, some are great. Some could do everything. Some could edit it and shoot it and, you know, act it and do everything. Some, some can't. Some cannot do much. And yet the, you know, once you're represented by, you know, a major thing like uh, William Morris or something like that, your feet don't touch the ground anymore. Yeah. You know, it just, you just don't. And if you've had a hit, then you can live the rest of your life and be a complete imbecile um, <laughs> because you had a hit. And there's, it takes 20 people to screw in a light bulb now. Yeah. You know, so, so maybe if you have a credit, you, you were a director, maybe you really weren't the director. Maybe you just sat in the chair and someone else yelled, someone else figured out the lighting, somebody else blocked it. You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell anymore. Yeah. So I actually put a pencil on, on the paper and actually have to put a note on there. You've got to, you've got to create, you you can't just pretend like you have to actually produce something at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. Well, they do too, but, but they get, but I'm just saying there's a lot more um, forgiveness and Mm. a lot more space as if, Oh, Hey, Skippy, come over here. You know, everyone, you know, Skippy's going to do a magic trick for us right now. <laughs> Nobody's going to hold Skippy, your hand through the through the score. Skippy's, you know, you, and you're all sitting there watching, waiting for Skippy to do something, and he and he just like blows up a balloon, <laughs> and everyone goes, "Oh my, how special Skippy is! Oh, he's, <laughs> he's going to go to Harvard! Oh gosh, you know." And uh, you know, let's put Skippy in the other room now. <laughs> you know, so. I'm tired of dealing with Skippy. I, I, I can really tell. Have, I can tell. I, I have angst about it, you know, because I I sit there and I write and I have to know my my art, my craft seriously. Yeah. And turn a virgin blank page into music that operates on a, on so many levels, um, and um, you know I'm. I, I've just worked a lot real hard at that. And I, I never got the knack of being able to put up with the BS part. Yeah. I've never, that's, that's my one down. That's the and, art right there. <laughs> no, it's, it's just be, I, I guess I'm, I just, it just makes you tired. You just get tired of it. You just go, okay, why? Yeah. What, what's, how can I, that's why I usually only last like Star Trek next generation. I last four four seasons um and it went on for a lot you know i could have bought you know luxury condominiums <laughs> in uh lawn and stuff like that to go along with it but you know after a while i start rubbing them the wrong way and they rub me the wrong way and eventually yeah. we just kind of say that's it but um well we'll get you know. we'll get to star trek in a second but i mean you talk about you know at the end of the day you've got to put pencil to paper and create and you not only have to create, but you create in, in enormous quantities. Um, what kind of blew me away was that the four years between 87 and 91, when you worked on the first four seasons of, of Next Generation, so you did 42 mm-hmm. episodes of that, but you did also at the same time over 100 episodes of DuckTales. Like, that's a lot of work. How did you juggle that? And Mission Impossible. Right, and that's and, not even it. You, and, you, you animated, had a lot more. Animated. I know, and it was not whole notes. I didn't get a... I mean, uh, I, these were, 
I, I don't write difficult to write difficult, but when you're doing Star Trek and you're doing uh, complex animation and stuff, you, you don't, uh, whole notes won't do it because you're not doing incidental music. You're doing music that that is in direct alignment right. with the action and direct alignment with everything. So just laying things out sometimes takes three days just before you even pour a note in. Just laying the architecture of your building, you know, that much time. Um, and, you, and you, you know, the, the hand goes really quick and you go as fast as you can. And my, my uh, guiding principle is that if the pencil's not moving, then I'm dead. I, I keep that thing moving, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or else, and um, you know, putting things on the page. And usually, there's such a flow as you as you get into it. And um, I mean, I can actually start writing within a, a minute or two. I don't I don't have to sit there and wait for a cherub um, <laughs> to to give me a frapp a frappuccino or something, and all of a sudden great bells would go off and it's a, I mean it takes a while sometimes you have to take a walk and think about something but usually you do that work before you sit down you don't go what am I doing today yeah, you know, I, yeah, I've yeah. read the script I've looked at the picture I've looked at the cue sheet I have my timings you know let's go you know that's that's my thing so what was your familiarity with Star Trek before getting that job and were you a fan or were you just casually aware of it as that show from the 60s i'm not a fan now yeah i'm not a fan at all i mean i go to the star trek conventions is that because of your experience on the show and and no not at all i wasn't a fan before that i mean i i had watched the original series and i think i was like 11 years old or something when it came on and it was on in the summer Mm -hmm. you know it was like a, a summer replacement and we were all blown away with it. You know, as corny as it looks now, it was really hip then and very different. And, um, um, you know, I, I, I've always been about, you know, the, the astronauts and, and getting out in space and doing different things and, and uh, adventures and, and journeys and all that stuff. So I enjoyed the whole process that mankind would be out there. And it was the Vietnam War period. So we were all starved for hoping that humanity would stop trying to kill each other just because, you know, one, one group is over here, thinks one thing, let's like move forward, you know, let's, let's go forward. So this was all about that. Um, And then I went about my business, you know, and uh, nobody was selling soundtracks or t-shirts or there was no real Trekkie thing yet. Mm -hmm. And, um, went about my, my business. And then, uh, I was doing all this animation and all these, and I'd done a whole bunch of Roger Corman movies to start with before you see my IMDb, 
I, I mean, the, the, three quarters of my stuff is, isn't even on IMDb. Not even there, IMDb. right? Yeah. It's not there. So I've done all this work and um, always was like everyone's poor man um, version of John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith, whatever they wanted. And um, so a friend of mine said, uh, hey, they're going to do the new Star Trek. I go, oh, good for them. You know, and I was over at, I was doing something at Paramount already. And uh, they said, can you bring your demo down and stuff? It'd be really cool for you to talk to the guy that's advising Robert Justman. And, yeah. um, and so I did. And, and uh, my wife said, that's a terrible demo. Uh, I said, but it's all space stuff. And, they, and she said, don't give them space stuff. Just give them energy. Yeah. Just give them freaking fucking energy. And I, I did. I, I took all that stuff off and came in the next day and uh, got a chance to to play this for the guy. And, and before he was done, he went over to the phone and started talking. And I said, oh, great. You know, I'm, I'm going to be dismissed here. And he's got off the phone. He says, okay, go to Trailer 24 on Thursday at 11 o'clock. Huh. I go, why? <laughs> and he goes, because I want you to score Star Trek Next Generation. I go, what? You know, so I was surprised, and I didn't even know that Dennis was involved, and I didn't know any of that stuff. And then I looked at the show and started. So, um, what, you know, what, it was pretty pretty weird. What kind of a directive were you given during that first season? I mean, were you, were you given any freedom? Or, like, how much of a tightrope did you have to walk between the familiar score of the original series versus creating something brand new for whatever it was, 1987? Well, the way that I was told, um, and this was Robert Justin, is that they didn't want to scare the, they, what, they, what Paramount was worried about. This is the studio. Mm -hmm. They were worried that everyone had, that had gotten used to the original Star Trek was used to Shatner and they were used to Spock and they were used to the look and the feel. And here is this new one, you know, many years later, and there's a British captain with a bald head, and there's, uh, you know, the Klingon, there's a Klingon there, and there's, you know, it's a weird cast, and yeah. it's a weird, you know, it's like a, you know, um, a nightclub in, in Denmark, you know? It's a weird group <laughs> of people. So, at three in the morning, and... And uh, you go, wow, you know, what a, what a different group. And they were worried about that, too. So they said, okay, that's why they had the original bum, ba -da, the thing in there mm -hmm. and kind of the opening sort of like the original. So they were hoping to bring – so that first year was sort of like, um, uh, you know, training wheels. Yeah. And the writers and everybody was trying to operate in the jello mold meaning not, not totally that, but close to it so that it didn't scare people. And then after they got used to it, the plan wisely was let's actually do what the main title said was to go boldly where none have gone before. And they then released the, the shackles. And so by season three, I mean, it was kicking in the high drive and, yeah. and um, uh, but it took it took that first year and and uh, so it was a little bit bombastic and a little bit more uh, iconic um, and definitely hammering things and uh, it went other ways and then and the funny thing is they sort of left me alone like when I 
been in a room with Jay and Dennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't tell them at all what they told me. It's like going to a party and there's a joke and you left the room, you know, to get some punch or something. And they, and the story was told, and then everybody was laughing as you come back here. What are you laughing about? I was, oh, nothing. You know? And then, <laughs> and then the basis of the whole, how you work was going to be based on that joke you missed. Yeah. And so they, they, um, so what were the different directions the, that they were getting? Um, suppress the melody and I didn't suppress the melody. I, uh, you know, that has been proven, uh, to be a Nehru caller, to be like something that was, um, certain, uh, directors and film people were afraid. They, they became afraid of music and they, uh, felt that music, the, the thing that was bugging people the most was melody. And so they'd say, you know, right, oh, take that stuff out that those guys are playing over there. And you'd say, what? What stuff? Those guys, the melody. Oh, okay, take that out. So, you know, there was no, there was nothing to hang the emotions on. It was just, you know, kind of pads and mm-hmm. little grooves and things under there. So when you listen, this is an assignment for your listeners. Um, when you go back and you look at, the shows that I was involved in, especially say season two and three, you can see that I was like on cocaine musically compared to other people that were on Ridland. Like the score was on Ridland on other place and, and and for me, I got to be the wild man. You know, I got to I got to be always the wild man. And nobody ever gave me any lecture that said, um, Oh, by the way, um don't do stuff with the melody and don't do all these things. I mean, I was out there. So um and, and they... then eventually that they, they forgot that they didn't tell me the joke and then <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm in I'm in hot water at some point, and I would just kind of go to each show thinking I they hate me and I'm going to be dead. You know, yeah. I'm going to hate me and I'm going to be dead, and that every time, you know, every time, and no feedback other than kind of a grumpy okay, next, you know, <laughs> like it worked for them and some and my my I don't know what the different nicknames were, but they call me the genius. I was like their they're genius. So they kind of let me go. Um, and I don't know. Now I know that genius means like a negative thing. Ah, he thinks he's a genius. <laughs> you know, like, it's not like, oh, it's a genius. Oh, it's a, it's a smart guy. They go like, ah, you're a smart guy. So it's all, all in the inflection. Exactly. So, 
yeah, so I don't know. Sometimes it's a good name, sometimes it's a bad name. I, <laughs> you know, um, uh, but but they were okay with know. they were okay with you sort of off in your own direction because I mean if you listen to say one of your scores versus like a Den- mm-hmm. one of Dennis's um, mm-hmm. I mean you do notice the differences. However, when you watch the episodes, you, it might not be as noticeable. So, I mean, they weren't concerned about the music having that unifying effect or, or having a consistent sound for the epi- for the show. I mean, what are we running like a gulag or something? Like, <laughs> we don't have to be under Stalin. That we are gonna, we are all going to paint pictures that are all round <laughs> with blue circles, you know, and little little dots. I mean, we we're allowed, you know, freedom, uh, you know, to, to express. And, and, uh, the problem with non-musical people telling people how to, it's sort of like telling a painter, Hey, you know, you know, can you make it lateral? Not like, you know, like, yeah, it's like, it's stupid. It's like either hire the person, give them the tools they need and stand back. And so any score that's in there, they liked, if they didn't like it, they would they would fire me because I anybody could have been fired at any time. You had a contract per show, so every show you had to sign a new contract. There, because if they didn't really? like you, they didn't want to have to pay you for ten years. You know, so so same thing was true with the actors. If they didn't like somebody, they'd say, "You're out, buddy, and we're gonna kill you." So, yeah. um, uh, so no, you, you, it's it's I think. Um, I've had certain producers that talk about a thing called um, mental dissonance or, you know, like it's all got to be the same. It's got to have the same font. It's got to mm-hmm. have everything. We must be consistent or the children are going to strip and run out in the street and get run over by buses <laughs> and, 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 and they're going to be listening to wild music. It's going to be an- complete anarchy. Yes, it's going to be dogs and cats, you know. Like it's going to be nutty. The subways, nobody will be able to go in them and, you know. Ice cream will melt. I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the earth will lose its its polarity. So, yeah, I mean that. But now you look back and you have to say, "I'm thank goodness, the set designer was creative. Thank goodness, the special effects people were there. Thank goodness for the dub. Thank goodness for the people that put their imprint, their creativity. You know, like you don't want just wild, crazy shit, but you want you right. want to." You want everybody to work within the parameters. Sure. And uh, and um, so that's that's what I did. I, I was very concerned about being writing something that was successful. And to me, I would always I always do a show, and then I I sit in my chair in my big giant you know nine one um, uh, system and giant screen, and I want to be moved. I want to go, wow, this is great. You know, like, like, yeah.
if I don't get moved, then I, I go, well, what happened? So I'm writing for an audience of one where I want to be excited. I want to be happy with it. So I'm not just mailing it in and go, well, just send me the check. I don't give a crap. I'll just make it up. I'm not one of those guys. Those yeah. guys are, are zombies. They're, they're just, first of all, they have nothing to offer in the first place. They're just doing it for the money. They're yeah. just doing it for that. And, you know, gosh, I have over 40,000 compositions and I cared about everyone and I'm still writing my butt off. So, so, so then uh, I guess I want to ask yeah. then, I mean, knowing that about you, I read an interview you gave a while back um, mm-hmm. where you said that scoring for TV is like working for an advertising agency. Things are mm-hmm. done. Things are done in committee, and and it's like your boss is an accountant, not not anybody who's creative. Do mm-hmm. do you still feel that way? And was that what your experience on Star Trek was like? No, it wasn't like that on Star Trek. It wasn't like that on Family Guy. Um, yeah. you know, working with Seth, he's like you. He's like a soundtrack geek and someone that understands and and has a very deep knowledge and and experience and and feeling about the score and um uh, and and really so did they i mean they were these are these were very smart gifted people that i worked with i mean didn't that i mean you can be smart and gifted and still be an asshole so you know they they were smart gifted marginal on back and forth on other things because they were stressed out um you know a lot of them went through marriages like toilet paper um, because they were so, they were so rotten on them and all the pressures on them. So it's just part of the, it's more like what's guilty is the, is the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. Now I think it's a little bit more, um, uh, mature and has moved forward from all that, but it's still, it still can exist. It just all comes from the top. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, but I felt everyone was sharp people and, and I rarely have worked with people that were, uh, you know, not just fantastic intellects. You're right. They're they're really smart. Uh, I know you're a jazz guy, and you've got your own jazz band. So when you were on Star Trek, was it was it a particular joy for you when you got to break out of that mold and 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 write some source music or jazz? And, you know, I'm thinking especially about that. I think it was the first season, um, that one that was in the jazz club with with uh, Riker. Uh... I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. I mean, jazz is just another bag. I'm a French horn player. I'm not a jazzer at all. Oh. And in fact, I hate jazz. What? I, 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 I mean, I don't, in other words, I say that because I'm just trying to shock people into understanding that I'm into the notes. I'm into the music. I don't care if it's avant-garde or Mary Had a Little Lamb or a song or a pop thing, or a funk thing, or whatever. I don't care. Spin the dial any way you want. I'm into the notes. How do you put those together? How do you do that with art and craft? So 
when I've done the jazz stuff, it's because I've enjoyed being with the players Mm -hmm. and because in college, the jazz guys were the least stuck up, the most open to new charts. And I go into the orchestra conductor and always they were pricks. I mean, you go in and I go, look, does it, did you take a class on how to be a dick? Because you're really good at it. And, and it looks like you have a PhD in something, you know, and that's must be it because it's not music, obviously, you know? And, and so they're the least, they want to do Brahms. They want to do, you know, the standard literature and go home. So the jazz guys would say, man, we want a new chart. We want something. So even in, my high school times, um, I gravitated towards that because I could write whatever I want. And so I have a jazz, I have a jazz group in LA that I don't do a lot with now, but I have one in up here in the Northwest and, um, I can do, I, I mean, I could just spin that baby and go, you know, go crazy and do whatever I want. And it's 12, 12 players, mm-hmm. a symphony, for me to afford a symphony means I have to have 75 players right? and it's hard to fit them in a club, you know, like, you know, it's hard enough to fit, fit 12, you know, and people are eating dinner and drinking and stuff. Like, how do you put that many, mm-hmm. you know? So with my big band in LA, because of Seth and everything, Seth would hire the band, he'd sing with the band and then he'd hire the band and spend, you know, six figures to have the mm-hmm. 75 piece, version of the band do five hours at his at his tennis court in the backyard with a big party so um you know it made more sense so i still have all those charts but but um yeah i, I want to straighten that up you know that i can i mean yeah. so when when if they if they went to whatever planet they went to and whatever i tried to lock into what that culture was and so those stories that were written about them going in the holodeck and Riker needed kind of a vacation, so he goes, I want to go to Paris mm-hmm. and other stuff. Mm-hmm. I tried to do the best freaking uh, Parisian jazz possible. And I called the best players, and, the, you know, we matched it all up. And so I thought it came off magically great because we we made the music real. We made it sound like a really great record. And that was just for production TV shit, you know, like, you know, you could have said, well, you know, I'll just you know, I'll give them a couple bars of yeah. this and we'll mess around. We, it was really tough. I worked harder on that source music than I did for the whole rest of the score. And, um, you know, uh, we had to have a guy, a trombone guy, you know, play so that it looked like Riker was playing. Yeah. So that, that was my question because Jonathan Frakes does play, so... Uh, I was just mm-hmm. curious if if you guys worked together if for that one episode particularly that I was thinking of where he plays in the... No, in the... he was one of, really one of the nicer people, and that's why 
I think he went on and, and became a director and yeah. they let him do a lot of, I think you get, you get a little, a lot more done being a nice guy. And he truly was yeah. um, a very, a very, just a nice human on top of. Yeah. We've had him on the other, show. We've yeah. had him on this show yeah. and he is just, just a phenomenal person. So nice. You're absolutely right. Yeah. He's, he still is. I yeah. think he still is. So, so yeah, there's, you know, you, he got away with stuff, but, uh, but you know, that was, they sort of, you spot it and they don't know quite what to say. They're, they just came from another meeting. They're pissed off and they haven't been home for a long time. And so they're just kind of going, you figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. So I got a little bit of, I get a little bit of direction and I'll say, um, let me do this. But back then you didn't do a MIDI score to have them check it. So once I decided what to do, unless they wanted to, to rescore the whole episode or, or a cue, they went with what we, whatever I showed up with and they didn't come to the sessions. They were all busy. So we'd have a, a line producer come who was contractually required to be there, but he didn't know what was going on musically. And he wouldn't say, Oh, you know, the cellos are sharp mm-hmm. in bar 17, you know, and I don't, I don't like the counter line. You know, the counterpoint really disturbs me. I mean, they, they don't talk like that. So I'm on my own. You know, the composer is really, you're out on a limb. And if you if you make it, you're not a hero. Yeah. If you've done like an amazing thing, you're not a hero. And even though it demands heroics every time, and then you had to make a lot of decisions late at night mm-hmm. with no one you could call, uh, and a bunch of people that were always stressed out and pissed off and didn't want to talk about it. So what you did is you just knew that every day, every gig was suicide. So you might as well coat yourself in, in kerosene and light the match because either you're going to make it or you're not each time. And that's how my whole career has been. It's just been, in fact, if I wrote a book, it would it'd be called the art of suicide mm. or something like that because you have to be able to will be willing to calculate the risk and run into a room full of knives, you know, and kerosene and come out alive yeah. with the score. Not only write great music, but go through all that every time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an impossible, it's an impossible thing. Um, and it, so all of your Star Trek music was released uh, as this 14 disc box set, the Ron Jones project. <laughs> Uh, in, mm-hmm. in the liner notes or in the booklet for that, you, you, you're you quoted as saying that when you first came on your first few episodes, you were really trying to be Jerry Goldsmith Jr. Um, mm-hmm. How long did it take really before you could just be yourself, be Ron Jones? Um, it was it's sort of like being a multiple personality that, that Jerry was always in there. Yeah. And and um, a little bit of John is in there, a little bit of Mahler was in there, and a little bit... I mean, there's all these ghosts that are in there kind of looking over your shoulder, and you almost want to turn around and tell them to shut up. Mm. You know, like, shut up while I'm writing. Because you know, they're going, you know, it could be better. <laughs> could, you could... You, you know, you're really... Goddamn, you know, that baseline sucks, dude. You know, and, and I was... I was a protege of Lalo Schifrin at the same time. And so I could hear Lalo's voice saying, you know... Ron, you must, you know, like the, the line, you know, it, it's at the eight note scale, you know, I'd hear all these things. And so you had to tell them to shut up so you could write. Yeah. 
So you have to kind of calm the voices down. Um, uh, so I still think of that, like, you know, like I'm, I'm starting on a project where it's like 11th century knights in shining armor and stuff. So I'm, I'm thinking corn gold, you know, I'm kind of like have corn gold whispering in my back of my neck and saying, you know, it's this, it's that, you know, and I have to kind of tell them to back off, you know, um, you ask them for a little bit of ice and they go too far, Yeah. you know, so at, at, at the end of the day, though, people could hear it. In fact, when when one of the producers uh, would complain, he'd say, there's too much Ron Jones on there. Hmm. And I'm going, well, excuse me, dude. You know, there's too much there's too much of you in, in the whole room, dude. Like, <laughs> like, in fact, there's too much of you in L.A. Why don't you just go out, <laughs> go out in the water somewhere so you can calm it down because there's too much of you shit everywhere. Yeah. You know, so it's like it's like they, it's like an actor, like. Actors have it tough because they say, I didn't like how you did that. Then they, it's like the whole person. Like You, you didn't say, um, hey, you know, you're a terrible person and you have a weird, you have a weird eye there and you're ugly. You know, you're just saying, I don't like that. Can we do it a little differently? Right. Yeah. So you have to, you have to balance that. But, but for them to say there's too much Ron Jones. Yeah. What is that? Shit, man. You yeah. know, like, how am I going to hide that? In the, so I'm glad they didn't say there's too much Jerry Goldsmith in there. You know, yeah. they never said that. <laughs> then you, then, then what do you do, right? <laughs> then you tell, you give Jerry part of the credit. Yeah, you, know, that, you have to. You know, uh, but that's a good thing to be compared to. Like if you're, if you're going to, you know, if you're an impressionist painter, and somebody says, you know, you're a little bit too much like Matisse. You go, well, ah, well thank you. That's not a bad, that's not a bad rank me down. Yeah, you know, that's fine. And I'll yeah. be bad Matisse. So that's fine. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of actors. Uh, I've talked to them, and a lot, what a lot of them say is that they can't watch their own performances until they've forgotten the lines, and then it's sort of mm-hmm. they're watching somebody else perform. Do you mm-hmm. find that to be the case? Like, can you watch shows or films with your music, or just listen to your music in isolation, or is that not something you do? Well, I mean, you know. Um... It's everywhere. I mean, outside, like as we're speaking, it's in seven countries. Yeah, you know, all these shows are playing. So I'm, I'm grateful because I get royalties. <laughs> um, you know, I'm glad that the cash register keeps selling. <laughs> but um, when I, when I got off the show, you know, in, in uh, for Star Trek, you know, you get, you kill yourself so much that you take it kind of personally. It took me a while to just, you know, kind of like not feel sick. You know, looking at so when they did the best of both worlds redo where they kind of upgraded everything mm. and uh, put that in the theaters, right. I thought about it. I said, somebody said, you should go. And I said, uh, so I went and I was pleasantly surprised at how well everything held up. For 30 years, you know, if you can score a movie 30 years and then go see it in 30 years and still have the audience and everyone dig it, then it was good. It was solid. So, um, you know, of course, I, I, 
you know, I'm, I always like to listen back. Um, I mean, when you do a record or something, you want to do it and just not go on to the next thing. You want to, you know, not dwell on it, like, um, have a fetish about it mm-hmm. and you just move on and paint another painting, bake some more cookies, but it's okay to come back and look at it and enjoy it. I don't have any, you know, um, prime directive that says if I look at, it, I will, I will turn into a, you know, stone. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, but I also don't sit around and go, Hey man, I'm watching my greatest hits. Come on <laughs> in, you know, <laughs> Milton Burrow, you know, I play all my Milton Burrow hits, man. <laughs> you know, come on in, you know, like being a real bore with that. I mean, you know, I, it's hard enough to be a human when you've done this stuff, you can't talk about it. Yeah. I'm talking about it with you, but you can't go to a dinner party and go, you know, I sure. remember when I was at Paramount, and uh, God came over and said, you know, I really like your shows. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't, you just, they just turn on and you go, oh, fuck, I hate this guy. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, you don't, you're not allowed a lot, but once in a while you watch it, you just see if the idea held up and you go, yeah, good, yeah. you know, I mean, but I keep, I keep all the original scores and show people that there's like 40,000 scores there written by hand. And where do you like keep a them monument? All? Where do you keep them all? Well, we have, well, we, we moved to a place. We've got a huge, like 22 acres. So we built a whole building to just put the music in the lower floor. And then I have another whole section. So there's just stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks. So it's the Ron know, it's like a junior Museum. version of Fox. Yeah, it is. It's that, well, and then I framed a lot of the pictures from sessions and pictures of different aspects. So it really is. It's sort of like going to uh, a museum, and in in the even the even in the studio bathroom, there's pictures of Carl Stalling recording music for Walt Disney, and you know, so it's like the whole place is like an. When you get done, you get educational credit. (laughs) Community college gives you two credits of music appreciation for just visiting. Are you you taking appointments? Can can anybody just drop by and check it out? No, not everybody. I mean, if you're on cocaine or or you're an opioid guy, I tend to not have them over. The door is closed for you if that's the case. I say, look, go to the emergency right now. Don't come here. go, Go get some help. Uh, Betty Ford, here's the number for that. <laughs> so I, I don't have those guys. But everyone that comes there, all the you know people that were not in Hollywood and stuff, they're kind of they kind of walk around in a daze. Sure, seeing all this. Um, and, and to me, it gives context to the new projects because um, I can point to that with my new engineers and new people and say, this is what we are doing. This mm-hmm. is why the microphones are up here this because i can point to it so it's kind of an object uh lesson just by hanging there yeah and they go wow you sure worked with a lot of people i go yeah yeah thousands <laughs> and thousands of people so um it, it's worth it's better than keeping it in a box and oh, for sure never seen or, or an old dusty thing i'd rather it's your I'd life rather it's your it life's there. work you might as well i mean take pride in it and, and flaunt it for for what it's worth well, I mean, I, I enjoy it. I mean, I don't I don't live in it. I'm not, it's not like Mr. DeVille, I'm ready for like <laughs> close up in that kind of Sunset Boulevard bullshit. It's more like it's more like um, 
you know, you just put the stuff that you're you're proud of. If you were an astronaut, you'd have pictures of Saturn Fives going off. And, sure. And you know, your buddies all in, wearing the spacesuits, and and uh, you know, you'd you'd have memories. You know, yeah, you'd have absolutely. things that are worth that you're you're happy about. So, I mean, throughout your career, you've worked on, like you said, it's just thousands and thousands of projects. And you've, we mm. mentioned, we mentioned DuckTales, you mentioned Family Guy, you've done over, well over a hundred episodes of, um, is working in animation or writing the music, I guess I should say, is, is animation different than live action? Is it just the quicker cuts and, and the faster pace? No, that's, that's a myth. Okay. That's a complete myth. I mean, you can, you can find animators that do everything and anything, they can look like Shirazawa, you know, um, they can look like, you know, a foreign film. It could look like anything because with animation, it's just all you have to do is draw it. Mm. You know, you can, the whole thing could be a dot that just sits there for three minutes. Now you couldn't do it in live action. That would be boring. Yeah. You go, why are you showing me this dot? But it can evolve. So it's more like a painting, the painting that can go anywhere. And it's, you know, when especially when it's done by human craft and hands and mm-hmm. stuff like that, it's a very expressive uh, artifact. And um, uh, so I don't find it. I'm not. I'm not doing twa twa, diddly junk. It's not like that at all. Uh, that was the most unsophisticated filmmaking ever. And so you look at these two hundred million dollar animations now. Um, you really can't tell the difference between them and a, any feature film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably more better executed and better lit and better everything because they controlled every freaking frame. So animation has made like these Marvel movies and superhero things like those are basically animation done yep. with live. But they're standing in front of blue screens. Mm-hmm. If they just move one centimeter this way because we're going to have the weird claw is going to come out of your out mm-hmm. of your eyeball you know and so basically it's just using humans just for the element yep. you know not because you it's don't a need human them anymore. show yeah yeah it's a, it's totally an optional thing so i don't there's, there's really i never saw any difference huh um, don't. so this might be we might chalk this up to you can't trust what you see on the internet but did you work on the force awakens they credited me with some shit in there, and there's a bunch of movies where they tracked, like they contacted the publisher, uh-huh. and they stuck stuff in. And so I'm surprised by that too, because um, <laughs> okay, because you know, because I, I I'll get checks, you know, I'll get checks that you know, um, there's a miniseries that had Reese Reese Witherspoon, I think it was called Secrets. Uh, something lies and secrets mm-hmm. and that was on HBO and all of a sudden I'm getting checks, you know, cause they used my fairly odd parents theme, uh. which was appropriate cause those parents were fairly odd. <laughs> um, as the kids were watching it in the background where the parents are yelling, you know, living in Malibu. So, you know, they use, I get a check. So, yeah. um, yeah, so shit goes on, but nobody sat there and said, Oh, we want you to score something. And, and yeah. I, I have no ba- verification um, other than I get a check. So if, it's, <laughs> if, it's, if it isn't on there, thank you very much. You know, I appreciate it. You know, it's nice. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I'm pretty sure John Williams did the whole thing. I, I think he did, probably. 
unless Luke Skywalker in an early life was watching Family Guy or something. I yeah. I mean, I really don't know. I don't remember Family Guy making an appearance in that movie. So. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes they track things. Sometimes they they like a track, and they they just buy it and they just stick it in there. And so I, I've seen that with all kind of video games, all kinds of stuff. Once you're you're you created this like catalog, this huge body of work, and it's all controlled by different major studios and the music departments uh, like star trek the music from paramount got sold off to sony right sony sold that to somebody else so like some guy is sitting there in some offices doesn't care about star trek just because i'm gonna sell i'm gonna sell this music you know for use under a soap opera in brazil you know and all of a sudden you're getting checks from brazil, from brazil so right. it's it's bizarre yeah if uh if you had to hold up one score of yours that best exemplifies your career or that you'd want everyone to hear, what would you choose? Well, the ones that were super emotional, like say in the, te- in the context of like Star Trek, every show, every story had such cathartic, morality plays to them, you know, and mm-hmm. things that you want to say, it's like get along or let's, let's work together or let's, let's do teamwork or whatever the message was. But there was an episode called who watches the watchers. Mm-hmm. And in that one, of course they go to a planet where they think the, the, the indigenous people there are evolving kind of like Vulcans in a way. And, they think that the the Starship Enterprise people are gods. And they take them up to the ship because they're trying to show them they're not gods. And they show the one lady that's kind of a leader in the... So look, here's somebody dying, mm-hmm. you know? And when I did uh, Tasha's Goodbye in, in that episode where she died, and we had a seven-and-a-half-minute elegy, uh, in the holodeck where she's came back and she said pre-recorded how much she cared and how much she loved everybody. The orchestra cried the mm. orchestra hard, hard, uh, you know, alcoholics and, you know, jaded people were moved quite a bit by the combination of the music and the things. love it when I can move emotions and when it says something deep, something really deep in there uh, happens and that's what you live for. And that's, that's what I live for. And that's, that's more important than the pay or, yeah. or anything else because it, I hope what they'll remember about me after I'm gone, if I go anywhere, I'm not planning to die, but if I die, um, 
and I've made no reservations that I hope that they'll go, damn, I don't know who that who scored that, but they really, they really were nutty there. They really got into it and they, they said they tried to reflect the humanity that we're all supposed to be touched by. That's, that's what matters to me. And so it could be in humor. I love with family guy. We are always doing stuff that just makes you laugh till, you know, snot flies out of your eyeballs. You know, you're laughing so much. And so it was a joy to be working on a show that would make millions of people laugh, happy, you know, happy, after yeah. a, after a shitty day on the freeway. Yeah. So, you know, those, those are my payoffs and to do it musically and to do it with the musicians that I've been so fortunate to be put in the same room with has been beyond expression. You know, it, it makes me get up every day and want to write. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm writing like crazy all the time and doing projects and, uh, I still haven't got enough of this. I enjoy that doing that thing and, yeah. and making that happen. So, um, I can't point to one. Yeah. Unfair. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, last question. And I know you say that you're not a fan, but having written the music for the first four seasons, I think that you're uniquely positioned to answer this, but what is Star Trek music at its core? Well, it, the, the writers start the ball rolling before there's anything shot. And when I read the script, if you just got a script, you know, from the past and you didn't see the show, you could see that the writer had definitely some, um, this character was challenged and this situation was challenged and the crew could have died and somebody got blown up and earth was in jeopardy or the future was in jeopardy or something crazy happened. So it all starts there. And so with Star Trek, it was always mankind against the, the universe. And they all had to work together. So it didn't matter if they were short with three ears or tall with one leg and, or a fish or whatever they were. It just showed that if we're going to survive, if we're going to move forward, we need to be smart and we need to work together. We still not, have not learned that. You see Somalia, mm -hmm. you see uh, Mali, you see... Uh, Turkey, you see all the crazy shit that's going on everywhere and they can't keep up with it is that the music from the core at its core is scoring man at its best at its ideal. What we hoped it would be when we formed America, when the Greeks formed civilization, when Rome made the Colosseum, they all pointed towards people working together, people having a life, having something. That's a, and even the religions, as screwed up as they are, <laughs> they, kept, they kept wanting to make things better. So Star Trek gives you a chance to say, hey man, we made it. We're at least at that point. We're at that point, they're still having challenges, and there's still always a weird force out there that motivates a story. But it starts with the writer's they captured that, and then it's up to the composer to take on that heavy responsibility of being true to that. 
And that's what always bugged me when people didn't do that, when they just mailed it in or they just thought, okay, let's take music and eviscerate it because we don't want it to mean anything. Mm -hmm. Like if, if, if that's pointing to what mankind can be. So, so when we get there, we just flush toilet music down the toilet. We just flush art and craft down the toilet and we're all going to be plastic, you know, and carbon. We, we are supposed to take those things. That's what Will Shatner would say at the end of the thing, you know, he says, this, isn't this what matters? So the essence of that, if you were to put it in a container and you open it up as sound, that's what the music is about. It's about those things. And I tried to be someone that could go through a whole story and try to pick those things out and find thematic material, harmonies, orchestrations, rhythms, um, compositions, underscore, under dialogue that only pointed to those things, you know, and happened all the way. So either that's valid or it's not. And either either Star Trek is valid or it's not. Or, you know, like I said, I'm not a fan in the gushy way. Yeah. I'm a fan in let's go humanity. Let's freaking not destroy the future. Let's make it better for those who come after us. Let's leave this a better universe and go forward um, in a positive way. And to that part, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm for it. Yeah. But, you know, I don't need to re wear a funny red suit, <laughs> you know, and, and walk around a, a convention drinking uh, big gulps, you know. I don't need to do that. I don't, I don't you know, I've been there a million times for being a, a guest person. So, so I sort of stand back from that because I'm hoping that underneath all the, the getting autographs of celebrities and all the other collections and collecting things and all these like fetishes that there's a fetish for honesty and a fetish for truly seeing what this baby can do. We've been given a Ferrari, which is our imagination. And we've mm -hmm. been given a Ferrari in hope. Let's go there and, and stop wasting time with all this confusion. And so we got a world to save. Talk about an episode of Star Trek. We, we got <laughs> to save it right now. Literally. You know, and, yeah. and we can't waste any more time. So that's what the core of the, that to me, maybe Jay or somebody who's going to answer it, say, man, it's about D minor. You know, it's about D minor. Oh my I'm God, really that, that that is exactly what Jay said. Yeah, I I I know my friends, know my friends. They, and you know what? They'll probably make fun of me. They'll probably go, you know, Ron, what's Ron's gonna say? It's about hope. It's about, you know, like they're gonna say, yeah, he's just full of crap. You know, with his hope shit. You know, we all know hope is not. Oh, you know, that's hilarious. Yeah. So they, you know, Dennis will say, you know, it's about your surfboard, you know, or BMWs or whatever. You know, he thinks. Yeah, and, and it's and it, and you know what? It's fine. I'm not. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm better than that. I'm just saying that's. I'm looking at the big picture, like you said in the beginning of the interview, that you're trying to talk about things from thirty thousand feet. I'm trying to talk about it from light years yeah. out, yeah. and and look at the, the the bigger picture of where we're at. So, anyways, I know I, I, I've worn you out with this. You've fact, not worn me out at all. I. I Ron, thank you so much. This has just been an absolute pleasure. It's, what a fantastic conversation. 
Well, Jamie, thank you for asking me to, to be interviewed and uh, uh, great success in everything that you do and with the program. And I hope your listeners enjoyed uh, some of my ramblings and my, some of my wild, uh, crazy thoughts. You can see why I was fired so many times. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> And there you have it, Ron Jones. I gotta tell you, I this this little project I gave myself to to talk to the Star Trek composers was. I don't even remember where it came from. I just thought it would be a good idea to do, and uh, my it really was. I had such a great time. This is just it was such a remarkable experience talking to Jay and Dennis and Ron. And coming up next week, in the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna give you bring you my conversation with Jeff Russo who is doing the music now for Star Trek Discovery. And just looking at Star Trek from the musical perspective has been just so much fun. And I really hope you guys enjoyed listening to it half as much as I enjoyed talking to these guys. Uh, It was just phenomenal. It was an amazing experience. So if you do like these kinds of conversations, please come back, hit subscribe, come on back week after week. This is what we do here every week. Sometimes we don't have conversations that run over an hour. If those are a little bit too long for you, I do apologize. We do have shorter episodes, but go back, check out our backlog. Uh, we got a huge catalog now. We're coming up on 200 episodes. Go check us out at www.thegbbpodcast. Follow us online, The GBB Podcast. You can find me at The Robots. And um, we're just going to keep bringing you great conversations like we always do and hope that you're going to come back and stay along for the ride. Great to have you, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Take care.